Thank you, Cindy, for that ministry and music. And good morning. I'm thankful to the Board of Elders that I have this opportunity to speak to you once again. Certainly uh, not glad that Pastor can't be with us this morning, but as you heard from him, uh, he hopes to recover and be back with us, Lord willing, soon. And so uh, this morning I'll be bringing the word to you. I'll also be doing the same uh, next morning and evening. And then, of course, we have uh, Snow Glow the following week, the 24th. So I won't be here in the morning, but uh, we'll be uh, preaching the word in the evening as that ser- uh, for that service as well. But this morning, I'd like you to turn open your Bibles to uh, the passage about Elijah, which we read this morning. And that's what I'm going to be talking about, actually. A story about Elijah, actually not the beginning of his ministry, but a little bit towards the end of it. And uh, Elijah, as you know, was a great prophet of God. He was a significant figure in the Old Testament, to say the least. He was so significant that, in fact, when we look to Matthew 17 and we see that Jesus is transfigured on the mountain before his disciples, and it has two figures of the Old Testament standing behind him, who would those figures be? Well, we have Moses on one hand, and believe it or not, the second one is Elijah. Elijah. I think that says something about just how important, how significant this figure was in the Old Testament. We might even say he's the second most significant figure in the Old Testament. I don't know if you can make that kind of uh, judgment, but, but if you could, I would say he's, he's up there on the list for sure. He did some amazing things in his lifetime. He stood for for God in a time when Ahab was king of Israel and Jezebel was queen and and there were many forces against God's people. There was a lot of consequences to speaking out in God's name. Uh, You might recall that he also prayed to God and and a poor widow was miraculously supplied food for many days. He even raised that widow's son to life when he died before him. And who can forget that contest? on the top of Mount Carmel, where he stood for God's name and and challenged the 450 priests of Baal to call down fire from their God while he did the same for Yahweh. And of course, we we know who wins that contest. Certainly Yahweh does, and the prophets of Baal are killed. But that took some courage. He didn't know exactly how things were going to turn out, whether God was going to send down fire immediately or, or what was going to happen. He was certainly standing against many many different people who wanted to kill him. So it took a lot of courage on his part. He did a lot of amazing things in his life. And he was constantly at odds with the king of Israel and the powers that be. On more than one occasion, he had to even fear for his life. And so in 1 Kings 19, our passage for this morning, we see a time in Elijah's life where he became depressed and just wanted to give up on life. I wonder this morning, have you ever felt like that? Like you've been trying to do all the right things for so long that you've been trying to withstand the pressures of this life for so long, but you just come to the end of your rope, as it seems, and you just want to want to call it quits. I want you to know this morning that's exactly how Elijah felt. And in this chapter, we find that while Elijah was ready to be done with life, God came by his side, had mercy on him and gave him the strength that he needed to persevere when it mattered the most. And as we study this text this morning, I believe we'll see three reasons that Elijah gets discouraged. But then to counteract that, God gives him four ways, four encouragements, four reasons to continue in the midst of his depression. 
And the overall message I want you to get this morning is that God encourages us in our work of living for Him. And He's able to lift us out of even the most difficult of times. Let me say that again. God encourages us in our work of living for Him. And He's able to lift us out of even the most difficult times. And I wish somehow I could have put that together as a short and concise title. My title's pretty pathetic here this morning. God encourages Elijah. Yeah, you can tell I put a lot of thought into that. Really, I don't want you to just think of this being some story about some man in the past about how God encouraged Elijah. I want you to see that God can encourage you this morning. And I want you to see what God does in Elijah's life and how he comes by his side and what that means for you and I when we find ourselves in similar situations. Okay? So, let's go through this. I said there was three ways that Elijah becomes discouraged and then four ways that God encourages him in the midst of that discouragement. Let's break it down. I think we can go through the text pretty much in that fashion. Open to 1 Kings 19 if you haven't already. And uh, as we look here, we will find the first reason. first reason he was uh, depressed was that he was running from threats against his own life. Evil men and women literally wanted to kill him. So you ask, how did this happen? Okay, how did he come to such a hated position? Well, in the previous chapter, Elijah was challenging King Ahab in that famous story that we know as the contest on Mount Carmel. And in that passage, Elijah summoned the evil king in order to confront this false worship of this god Baal and, and to show who really was God of the universe. Elijah boldly challenged these 450 priests of Baal on this mountain. And he challenged them to take an ox and to build an altar and to set that ox on the altar and then to call upon the name of their God and see if fire would come down from heaven and devour it. And he said he would do the same thing. So the priests of Baal did everything that they could. Okay? If you know about the story, we know that they called out all day long. They screamed, they shouted, they danced, they cut themselves even as was their custom to do anything to get Baal to listen to them. And meanwhile, Elijah's standing on the side, laughing at them, as it were, saying, oh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe you have to wake him up. Maybe you need to call a little bit louder. Okay? But nothing happens, of course. And then Elijah has his turn. And he puts his ox on the altar that he's built, and he's made this altar out of 12 stones, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, don't just put the ox there. Let's dump some water on it. So they do. And let's dump water on it again. So they do it again. And you know what? Maybe that's not enough. Let's dump water on it a third time. Just to prove a point here. So that even though this ox is soaked and you couldn't go up with a match and light it on fire yourself, there's water everywhere. It's dripping. And there's been no response from Baal. Let's see what happens now. And, and Elijah gets down on his knees and he prays to God. And immediately, fire drops from heaven and consumes both the water and the ox. And it shows that God truly is God in the world and that Baal is nothing. And so he orders that these 450 prophets of Baal be slaughtered immediately. And they are. And the people confess that the Lord truly is God and that Baal is nothing more than a figment of their imagination. And so God truly is praised here. And so Elijah stands up to Ahab in this case. And shows who truly is right. Now, you can imagine that even though he won this contest, you could say, or God won the contest more specifically, 
But now he's not going to be on such good standing with the king of Israel. If he wasn't that already that way before, now he really isn't on his good side. He's just made this enormous provocation against Ahab. And so he has to run back to his home country. And it says even at the end of chapter 18 that he runs faster with God-given strength. He runs faster than Ahab is able to return home on a chariot. And that's amazing. But he has to run now because he's going to be a hunted person now that he's had this confrontation. So we come to chapter 19 now, and we see in verse 1, it says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Note the emphasis there. All that Elijah had done. You see, he fails to see who, after all of this, all that happened right before his eyes, he fails to see who really does this great work. Not that Elijah did it, but that God was the one who did it. And so he's motivated by hurt and pride and his anger and resentment against Elijah. It blinds him to the work that God had done and the revelation of this event. And because of this, he's only added to this jealousy and to this ungodly response that will come now from his wife. So Ahab tells Jezebel, and she says this in verse 2, So may the gods do to me even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And so here, because of the slaughter that Elijah brought on the priests of Baal, and because of the previous hatred that had been building up against him from Jezebel and Ahab before, Elijah is now threatened with death. And, and we say that because, like it's just this story, like we're reading some, some book, and he was threatened with death. Okay, but, but realize how serious that would have been for Elijah. Imagine if somebody made a personal threat against your own life. And not just anybody. This is, wasn't just some Yahoo somewhere out in the land of Israel. Okay, this was the king and queen of Israel who were saying this. Who were delivering this message to Elijah saying, By this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. If that came to me, okay, I would be terrified. I would be thinking, my life's over. This is it. This certainly is the king of Israel. He has the power to do whatever he wants. And the queen as well. So if they say it, I better be running for my life. He was scared. And you can imagine why he would have run. And you can imagine even as he ran, because it tells us now in the text that he runs a great distance, how he would collapse from exhaustion, feel like eventually, no matter how far he ran, no matter what he did, he's up against the king and queen of Israel. What really is he able to do? How is he going to get away from this? Even after running for miles and miles, even if, if you know me, you know I couldn't run miles and miles, but if I could, I would collapse at the end and say, there's no way I'm going to outrun these guys. I'm not going to outrun the chariots that are coming after me. This is the king. He has the resources to find me if he wants to. And we see that Elijah did run a great distance. Verse 3 says, He was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. Stop there. Okay. First of all, we need to, to make this a little more real to us because we don't know where Beersheba is. We know where Lebanon and Palmyra and Myerstown is. Okay. We don't know where Beersheba is. This is not real to us. Okay, we need to understand just how far this guy really ran. Okay, so start with chapter 18. In verse 46, when the priests of Baal were killed, Elijah, it says, he, he ran from that place, okay, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. 
And if we were to get out our map, and I got out my map and was using the little key that said how many miles this was. As the crow flies, okay, and Elijah ain't no crow, understand, that's 25 miles. That's not taking into account the mountains and all the rivers and things in his way and the fact he has to go over rough terrain. He ran 25 miles to the beginning of chapter 19. Okay, that's not even it. Okay, then, assuming we left for, that, that he left from Jezreel, which is where Ahab is, so assuming they're in the same town, uh, in chapter 19, verse 3, it says he ran to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is in southern Judah. He is in northern Israel. Okay, if, if you know anything about Bible history at this time, there's two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and he's running between them. Okay, if you were to get out your map and try and measure this again as the crow flies, drawing just a straight line, um, that would have been almost 150 miles. Okay, so it's not just like he ran to the next cave, you know, out in the field somewhere that he just kind of hid himself in the wilderness in the same basic region, in the same county, we might say. No, he ran a great distance. 150 miles is the equivalent of us running from here to Washington, D.C., you understand. Okay? On foot. Uh, that would have taken him several days. And in addition to this, we see later on in verse 8 that he uh, ate some food and then he traveled on to Mount Horeb, which if you do a little bit of research, that it's some think that's just another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Okay? So he runs from Beersheba to Mount Sinai, which is in modern-day Egypt. That's another 150 miles. Okay, so he just doubled his trip. Over 300 miles this guy ran. Ran for his life. Now, can you imagine being tired after that? I think so. Even if you're in good shape, even uh, if you are used to running, you would be exhausted. And even after running that great distance, Elijah figured, I'm still running from the powers of the nation of Israel. Eventually, I'm going to run out of steam. And I think he did. Where, where we come to, he runs out of steam. And he says to himself, basically, my life is over. Even if I keep running, there's nowhere that I can go that they're not going to find me and overtake me eventually. And so he becomes depressed. He becomes overwhelmed at this pressure of people seeking to take his life. Verse 4 says, he requested him for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. I say all this to you because sometimes we can read this in the same light that we read Jonah's depression. Jonah sat under a tree after the town of Nineveh had been saved. And he says, take my life, Lord. I'd just like to die. That's very different. Okay, We can almost interpret these the same way and say, oh, Jonah was being a crybaby back then. He just didn't want to go on anymore, though. He was just thinking of himself. Elijah's doing the same. He's having this irrational fear. It's important for us to remember that the two are not the same at all. The guy is being chased for his life. He has run over 300 miles. I think he has the right to be a little bit despairing at this point. Okay? And, and it seems that if we put ourselves in his shoes, we understand where he's coming from. You, you should take note also that Elijah, in the midst of all this, however, didn't ever see an army coming to capture or kill him. He only ever receives threats. 
Okay, and you might say to that, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he never actually had to do a hand-to-hand combat with somebody who was coming at him with a spear, and, and he had to do these kind of like kung fu moves to, to stop him and then run off and everything. It's not that he saw an approaching army coming at him, and, and this was all very real. He only ever received the threat. So, so what was his, his big hang-up? Well, I think we can forget just the power uh, that threats can have, even by themselves. You know, we hear stories a lot about how missionaries overseas are are captured, are imprisoned, are threat, you know, threatened and beaten and, and killed even okay, for the sake of their faith. But one thing I don't think we hear as much is just how many times people are threatened and, and maybe something might happen to them. Maybe something doesn't. But just the sheer number of times for as many stories as we hear of somebody actually being beaten or imprisoned or killed. How many more times missionaries and Christians overseas are threatened? Okay, that's something that I don't think we should overlook. Um, Just a few Wednesday nights ago, I guess it was a few months ago, uh, if you were here for Missions Emphasis, you might remember the Securaglu family who came to us and were talking about their ministry in Greece. And I remember them saying that one of their prayer requests was that the work that they had established or that they were working with in Greece was under constant threat of, of attack. Uh, People were making threats and writing letters and all these kind of things, scaring the people into coming. I I think that's something that we can't think about enough here, just how scary that might be for for the secure glues or for whoever uh, is serving overseas in a hostile environment. And certainly how difficult it would have been for Elijah, even though he didn't see an army coming his way, even though he never had to face somebody one on one, you know, for his own life. Just how scary the threat of death might have been. Um, you might ask why, why Jezebel uh, only sent a message to him. You know, it, in the beginning of chapter 19, it just says that she sent this message to him saying, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. Okay, if she knew where to find him and where to send this message, why didn't she just send an army to kill him? Okay, I, I kind of wondered that myself. But perhaps it's because she knew that her threat could stop him just as much as an actual attack on his life. And look, she's right. If that's what she was thinking, at least for a time, she accomplishes that goal. That threat alone causes him to run far away and to almost give up on life. And I think that when we see that, we can see how, how threats alone can do a tremendous harm to the work of God if we allow them to get to us and allow them to erode our confidence in God and his protection. Um, That's what happened to him. He had this threat against his life. The first way he despaired. Now we come to the second reason. Okay, what are are some of these other reasons for his despair? Well, the second one is that he became depressed at this point because it seemed like his entire life's ministry was wasted. Okay, think about it. Here he was running for his life. And what had his ministry really accomplished? Verses 9 and 10 say this. Then Elijah came there to a cave and lodged there, that is Mount Sinai. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. Okay, stop there. Elijah thought, okay, Lord, I've been giving my life to serving you, to making your name known throughout this land. And what's really taken place here? Okay. Um, 
despite all that I've done, despite the fact that I'm the only one, it seems, who's been willing to take a stand for your name and put my neck on the line, the world hasn't seemed to change a bit. He says, uh, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They're even killing the prophets who speak in your name. So for all that I've done, for all the miles I've traveled, all the words that I've said at the risk of my own life, what, what does it matter? I've come this far, God. Now I'm being chased for my own life. I'm here alone and it's profited me nothing. Therefore, God, just end it. <laughs> just end it all now because I don't see what I've really done in my life. Nothing's seemed to work. We see that he had done an awful lot and we could certainly identify with him in this point when it seems that for all that he has done, there have been no external things that have come about to show fruit of his ministry. Have you ever felt like that? Like you've spent many years working at something, whether it be a ministry here at church or perhaps you've invested a lot of time, not just like a few hours, but like days of, of hours and Months of hours. Maybe you've been with a person for a really long time, working alongside with them, listening to them, helping them through problems, giving them advice, something. And at, at some point after all that, have you ever been discouraged because you look back and think, have I really made any difference at all? People feel that way all the time. I can imagine, for example, counselors might feel that way. Um, when, when a counselor might pour his heart out into something and, and, and help a person along who's come to them with this enormous problem and, and they've been guiding them through and giving them biblical advice or uh, trying to help them through, praying with them, uh, doing anything to just help them through that, that instance. And, and you begin to think, okay, my words are beginning to have effect and they're beginning to consider some of the things I say. And, and then the next day you hear that they've just gone and, and forgotten everything that you might have talked about or, or gone back on those words and just gone back to the old way that they were before they even talked to you. And, and, and it doesn't seem like any of it has made a difference. Lots of time has been spent, but you don't see any fruit. And you might wonder to yourself, am I doing something wrong? Have, have I made a mistake here? Because it seems for all of the effort that there is, nothing has really come about. Think about if you're a Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teachers could think this. Think of all the hours you, you spend if you're a Sunday school teacher just preparing week after week. And you're trying to impart biblical wisdom perhaps to some kids, maybe here or maybe adults or whatever the case may be. And, and after so many you know, weeks or months or years even of doing that, you might stop and say, have I made a difference? You know, has all this been worth something? I've heard um, past youth leaders you know, echo that kind of same thought. They, they've spent years uh, of working with teens and trying to get them through some the most difficult years in life. And, and I've heard it said that, you know, one of the hardest things is to do that and then to, to see a teen that you know you've worked with during their, their high school and middle school years kind of graduate and, and leave the church and just abandon everything that they've been taught. And, uh, and I've been told that that's one of the hardest things to do. And I can imagine that now working with teens... And, and feeling that same kind of thing, you, you, you feel like, is it all for nothing? Has all this effort that's been expounded and, and, and given, is it, is it all for nothing? Elijah was feeling this. He had given his all. There's no sign that we read in any of the previous chapters that he had done this half-heartedly. 
Okay, he had put forth his utmost for God. And now, what has it gotten him? It's gotten to the place where all of his associates have been killed, it seems. Nobody's worshiping the God he's proclaimed. And he's running for his life alone. We can see how this would have been depressing. His third reason for despair. Okay. Um, first was because people were trying to kill him. Secondly, because his, he felt his whole life's work was down the drain. And third, he was depressed because he felt terribly alone. And I've already alluded to this a bit. Verse 10 says... Uh, Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life to take it away. Elijah said that kind of thing in the previous chapter, chapter 18. He, he began that contest on Mount Carmel and he said in verses 21 and 22, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Okay, I think that deep down, let's be honest here for a second. If, if we were to be able to interview Elijah today and ask him about the words that he said here, and, and, and if I were to say to him, Elijah, did you really mean that you thought that you were literally the only guy left? I think he probably would have said no. I think deep down in his heart, he knew that literally he wasn't the only person in the world following God anymore. But I think what Elijah was feeling was more specifically that he, he, he felt like he was the only one still willing to stand up for God. Sure, there may be some people out in the countryside. Maybe he would have admitted that. But he really felt like he was the only guy making a difference in the world. The only guy willing to stand up against the priests of Baal or against the king or against anybody who worshipped otherwise and to actually say, no, that's not the case. God, Yahweh, is truly God in the world. Nobody else had stepped up to the plate. And he felt very much alone in his task to make God known. And now that he's traveled over, you know, so many hundred miles out into the wilderness, he really felt alone. If he didn't before, now he does. I wonder, have you ever felt alone before? For, for, for teens, sometimes it, it could be that you feel like you're the only Christian at school. Maybe you know the, the right things that you're supposed to be doing, the things that you're not supposed to be doing. You, you know uh, Jesus Christ who you're, you're supposed to be following. And, and it might seem to you at some times, when, when, you, when you look around in your classes, that everybody else seems to be living their own life, not following God at all, not even you know, caring about the Scriptures or about Jesus Christ or bringing Him glory or anything. It can be that at school you may feel like you're the only one there. And if I were to ask you, you might say, okay, well, I know there's Christians there. I know there are other people. I'm not the only one who's saved in my school. Okay? But when it comes to a place where you might stand up for your beliefs and receive a lot of flack for it and... It might seem like the whole class is giving you flack for it. You just might feel like you're the only Christian in the school. You might feel like Elijah felt right here, feeling very much alone and feeling like nobody else is taking a stand but me. That is a really hard feeling to be sure. If you're at work, you know, you, you, you might feel the exact same way, that you're the only one who 
cares about uh, about the things of God at work. You might be the only Christian, or if you're not the only Christian, it just might be that the, the people who are Christians don't really care to stand up or speak about the things of truth at all either, so that you feel the exact same way. It's very depressing. And Elijah looked up at all that he was against, and he felt that it was just too much for one to handle. Even if there were other people out there, none of them were standing by his side. And so essentially what it boiled down to was he was left to carry the burden. And when he thought about it that way, he thought, this is it. I can't carry all this by myself. I'm very much alone and I'm about ready to throw in the towel. So that's where Elijah finds himself here. He ran away from his home. He collapsed on the ground and basically said, take my life, Lord, for I'm all alone. I'm as good as dead. I've been a failure as a prophet. Now, my question is, did God just let him fade away like that? Did he just let him die as he wished? No, not at all. But rather, God strengthened him. And the reason was because God saw the bigger picture. Even though there were these three big reasons why Elijah was depressed, God responded even more. God went above and beyond those three and gave him four, four encouragements here to keep him going to strengthen him, to reverse some of that thinking that was just at times wrong and and misinformed, to get him back on his feet to serve again. Let's see how he does that. And I hope this encourages you if you ever find yourself in a similar depression that, that Elijah found himself in. First, we see that God took care of his most immediate need. He supplied him with food. And that's important. We see in verse four and eight, four through eight, Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree, requested that he might die. Verse five, after he slept, behold, there was an angel touching him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel came a second time and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. He rose and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. Okay, you see, not once, but twice God gives him food. And in the midst of exhaustion, God supplied the prophet with the food and the water that he needed to sustain him. It's interesting that even though Elijah only first appears in chapter 17 of this book, if you look back, we're not jumping far into his story. He had only started in, in chapter 17, verse 1. But I think it's interesting that there are so many references to bread in his life. Have you ever noticed that about Elijah? First, it tells us when he's introduced in chapter 17 that God calls him to to this ministry and ravens feed him bread. They bring this bread to him. Okay, that's one mention. Then we see in the very next chapter, he uh, he performs this miracle. But what's the miracle about? It's about supplying bread to this widow who is about out of food and is almost starved. And then we see in the very next chapter, well, there's the, the contest on uh, Carmel, and then 19, we come here and he's exhausted and the Lord supplies him bread. I think there's a significance to this. We talked a little bit about this this morning in, uh, in Sunday school, if you were in the class that I was teaching. That God is teaching Elijah here, not only about bread, but that he is the true bread of life, just as Jesus is the true bread of life. I think it's significant that this is happening to Elijah. Elijah and Elisha are two individuals that more than any other people in the Old Testament, I think, except for maybe Moses, prefigure Christ. What do I mean by that? 
Well, there's some things in Elijah and Elisha's life that point us to Christ in a way that's very unique to them. They, they do some things that are uncommon among all other people in the Old Testament. Think about it. Elijah and Elisha raised a boy to life. They both did. Nowhere else I can think of is that found, except in the life of Jesus when this happens. They, they supply bread here in this passage just a few chapters before Elijah does. And that reminds me a lot of the, the feeding of the 5,000 on the mount, where um, with just a little bit of, of flour and oil, it says in Elijah's case, he causes it, the supply to not run out. Okay, um, Elijah's taken up into heaven. He's one of the few people to do that. Only him and, and Enoch, I think, you can think of are, are, are people who don't experience death and are taken up into heaven, like Jesus Christ is taken up into heaven. I think his life is meant to point us forward to Christ. I don't think it's an accident that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is mistaken for Elijah. Okay? There's some thought that went into that statement, whoever says that in the New Testament. Okay? And I think that this, this mention of bread... This miraculous provision of bread is supposed to teach us a little bit of something that Jesus would ultimately teach us. That man does not live on bread alone, but out of every word that comes from the mouth of God. That he is the true bread of life. And that God is not just providing his physical needs, although we learn an important lesson here. That God does provide for our physical needs, even when we need them the most. That's the first thing that God does. Okay? But beyond that, that he's teaching Elijah not just about bread, but that he is the one who supplies him strength. That it's God who takes care of him day after day and gives him the strength to go on. I think Elijah is supposed to learn that lesson here. So he encourages him first by this bread. Okay. Second, God encourages him by revealing himself in this gentle wind. So we see in verse 11 and 12, God said, Go forth and stand by the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and we see this earthquake come and the fire comes. But God is only in the wind. OK, this gentle wind that blows by. There are so many ways to understand that. I'm not going to get into that. If you read commentaries, people try and interpret this in all sorts of ways. But I will boil it down to at least this. I think we can say at least this much that what God intends to teach him here is that though Elijah is looking for some grand display of God's power in the world. He's looking for results. He's looking for God to just overthrow the Baal worship and overthrow these kings and appear and just do something so that he could be seen. I think what's happening here is God is telling him, you know what? Though you may think I'm present when those big things happen, when there's an earthquake, when there's a fire, when there's some giant display, I'm also here in this gentle voice, this gentle wind. I'm here even when you think the world is silent and barren. Even when you think you're alone, I'm here. I'm present in that in a way that I wasn't present in all these other gigantic displays. I think he's revealing this to him so that he knows that he's not alone. God is with him the whole time. And I think we need to realize that as well. God's not silent. It may feel sometimes like we're praying to the ceiling, that God's not responding. But God's saying to us here, you know what? Even in the quietest moments, when you feel like I'm not responding, like I'm not making myself known, I'm there. I'm there even in the gentle wind. Third way God encourages Elijah is this. Elijah has expressed he feels like all of his work has been fruitless. God responds by saying, no, wait a second, that's not true. You'll see what I mean. Verses 15 through 17. The Lord said to him, go return on your way to Damascus and when you have arrived... Anoint Hazael, king of Aram, then Jehu over Israel. 
And then he says to anoint Elisha. You might ask, how does that encourage him? Elijah's saying, I'm feeling depressed. I want to quit. God says, get up and keep going. What? How's that help? The reason it helps is when we read in verse 17, it will come about. And I'll paraphrase here that the one who escapes, uh, you know, that Hezekiah will cut down the people who are evil. And then the person who escapes him, even Jehu will cut down. And anybody who escapes him, Elisha will cut down. In other words, you've been waiting for Ahab and Jezebel to be taken care of, for this false worship to be taken care of. And you haven't seen any result in your life. Guess what? I'm going to call you to anoint these kings and they are going to be my agents in bringing about justice in the world. They are going to remove this household of Ahab that you've been waiting for. So wait. I know you haven't seen it yet, Elijah, but wait and these things will come to pass. You will be the person through which these kings will come to power. And through them, through Jehu and through Haziel of Aram, these evil people will be killed. And sure enough, Haziel leads the nation of Aram into a battle against Israel. And in that battle, Ahab is killed. And then later on, when Jehu comes to power, he takes care of the rest of the household of Jezebel. And she's up in a tower and he's about to kill her. And, and she's shouting threats to him. And he says, who's with me? And people who are up in the tower uh, join his forces and throw her down. And she dies. So what is being said here to Elijah does come to pass. So God says, wait. Apply that to your own life. Could be that though you may feel like you're not having any effect, that all your work may be for, for nothing. Wait a second. God said, wait to Elijah. You'll see it. Could be that, that the fruit of your ministry is not even visible to you. It's happening, but you just can't see it yet. Or that that fruit is still to come. So don't give up hope because God is going to show it. God can choose to show it to us. The last way that God encourages Elijah is to assure him that he is truly not alone in this task. I already said that God's with him, but God goes beyond that. He's saying you're not even alone as far as men are concerned. For he says in verse 18, yet I leave 7000 in Israel, the knees of which have not bowed to Baal and every mouth has not yet kissed him. So not only is Elijah not alone, he is way off. Okay, he didn't just have a few prophets that are buried in a cave somewhere hidden, trying to avoid being killed. There are 7,000 people left. He says, Elijah, don't worry. You're not alone. And even more than that, he gives him something he did not ask for. He gives him a successor. So on one hand, he says, there are 7,000 people left. Don't worry. You have people on your side. But even more than that, I know that this task has seemed to be too much for you to carry by yourself. So I'm going to give you a helper. And his name is Elisha. And you know what? After you anoint these kings or in the midst of anointing these kings, you are going to anoint him and he's going to replace you. And my glory is going to be with him. And that's what happens. So we see in verses 19 through 21, Elijah departed, found Elisha. And all this stuff happens. He says, I have to say goodbye to my father first. And he does. And verse 21 says, so he returned from following him. He took a pair of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled the flesh the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he, that is Elisha, arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. And ministered to him. Elisha encouraged him. He took care of him. Elijah's an older man now. But God brings Elisha to his aid to help him out. And we see that Elisha gets to have a double portion of, of Elijah's power and his glory and all that he's bearing in the name of God. And so he continues it. He's not alone. He's not alone. What do we say in conclusion? 
There's many commentators who read this passage and try and say that Elijah wasn't really worried. They retranslate the words in Hebrew, so it's not saying he's afraid anymore, just that he's concerned or something. And the reason for it is because people can't stand the idea that a man like Elijah would have been depressed, that he would have been worried or concerned. They say that's out of character. Elijah was a great man. He's one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. How could Elijah feel depressed? They don't like that idea. And with that comes this theology that if we are Christians, that somehow being depressed is out of bounds for us too. that if we're Christians, we should just be entirely about the joy of the Lord all the time. And that if we if we were to feel depressed, that would just be an unthinkable thought. I tell you, that's not the case for if Elijah felt it and he was perhaps the second greatest person in the Old Testament. okay, then why should we expect any less? God said, if they if they hated my name, Jesus said, if if they hated my name and persecuted me, you can imagine they're going to persecute you as well. So there could very well be times where we feel the same thing that Elijah felt. And what I want to tell you this morning is it doesn't matter if that happens to you or not. It just may well happen. What matters is how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to trust in God and lean upon him when that comes? Are you going to give up? The encouraging thing is. That even though Elijah didn't appear to really be seeking God here, he just seemed to take the other route to just give up. God stepped beyond that and helped him, helped him back on his feet, even when he wasn't looking for it, even when he had thrown in the towel. So that if you are feeling that same way and you are feeling depressed and feeling like this, this world is over for you, even if you're not even seeking after God at that point, it's not beyond God to come alongside of you and lift you up anyway. Why? Because he's patient and merciful to us. He cares about us even when we aren't seeking after him. That's the message of Elijah this morning. That in the midst of our depression, whenever that time may come, God is alongside of us. Here to encourage us to tell us that we're not alone. Your life hasn't been in vain. You may not see it yet, but there are fruits. And you perhaps will see it later in life. I am with you. Even in the gentlest times, the times of the most silence, I am with you. I ask that you consider that the next time you're discouraged. Not expecting that all of us are discouraged this morning, but I pray that you'd keep these verses in your hearts so the next time you are, you'd remember the God who encourages you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encouraging words. And I pray that we wouldn't just see a story of Elijah, but we would see words that encourage us as well when we feel a similar way. We identify with this man. We understand how he could come to this point. And yet, God, we desire to trust in you. Help that to be the case. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.